0: Last week we looked together at Ezekiel chapters 3 to 5. In those chapters, God gave Ezekiel the task of performing some street theater. But the message of that street theater was in no way entertaining. God's message to rebellious Israel was, I am your enemy. I am against you. I will shoot to destroy you. Those were God's words. That message was directed against the city of Jerusalem. In chapter 6, which we didn't look at, the message is repeated. Only this time the message is addressed to the mountains of Israel. God says in chapter 6, I am about to bring a sword against you. Meaning the people who live on the mountains of Israel. Those mountains will be covered with bodies, God says, when his judgment falls. Then in chapter 7, God underlines his announcement that there is no escape. Those in the city, he says, will experience famine. Those outside the city will experience the sword. This morning, we're going to pick up in chapter 8. We've heard about the Lord's anger But we haven't heard much about what has provoked his anger, and now we're given that detail. Chapters 8 to 11 are actually one section, but we're going to look at that section over two weeks. So this morning we'll look at chapters 8 and 9, then when I'm back from holiday we'll plan to look at chapters 10 and 11. So if you haven't yet found Ezekiel chapter 8, you'll find it on page 835. In the Church Bible. And I'll read the whole of chapters 8 and 9. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came upon me there. I looked. And I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven. And in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court. Where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, look towards the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. And he said to me, go in. And see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. So I went in and looked, and I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. In front of them stood seventy elders of the house of Israel, and Azaniah son of Shapan was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, You will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women sitting there, mourning for Tammuz. He said to me, Do you see this, Son of Man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. Then he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and there at the entrance to the temple, between the portico and the altar, were about twenty-five men, with their backs towards the temple of the Lord, and their faces towards the east. They were bowing down to the sun in the east. He said to me, have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? Look at them, putting the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, Bring the guards of the city here, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen, who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim, where it had been, and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. As I listened, he said to the others, follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men and maidens, women and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go. So they went out and began killing throughout the city. While they were killing and I was left alone, I fell face down crying out, Ah, sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? He answered me, The sin of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed, and the city is full of injustice. They say, The Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see, so I will not look on them with pity or spare them but I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. Then the man in linen with the writing kit at his side brought back word saying, I have done as you commanded. This is God's word. Our passage begins with Ezekiel being given a tour of the Lord's temple in chapter 8. Chapter 8 verse 1 tells us this happened in the 6th year, in the 6th month, on the 5th day. So this is 14 months after the vision in chapter 1. And it's either after or towards the tail end of the street theater that Ezekiel's been performing. Obviously Ezekiel's performances have got people's attention. Verse 1 says the elders of Judah are sitting in front of Ezekiel in his house. These men are the community leaders of the exiles from Judah. You may remember that Ezekiel is part of an exiled community in Babylon. And here the leaders of that community have gathered in Ezekiel's house to listen to him. And while they're sitting there, Ezekiel says, The hand of the sovereign Lord came upon me. What that means is that Ezekiel receives another vision. And in this vision, he has a guide. His guide is the Lord Himself. Ezekiel describes his guide in verse 2 I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. If you remember back to chapter 1, this is the same figure Ezekiel had seen sitting on the chariot throne. The description is the same as the one in chapter 1, verse 27. And the Lord takes Ezekiel by the hair, and he transports him hundreds of miles west to Jerusalem. Now remember, this is a vision. Ezekiel is actually still sitting in his house in Babylon. But in the vision, the Lord takes him to Jerusalem and specifically to the temple in Jerusalem. You may remember that Ezekiel comes from a priestly family. The temple would normally have been the main focus of his life. But he's not able to serve there because he's exiled in Babylon. This is the temple that was built by Solomon. It was surrounded by several courts, In verse 3, Ezekiel says, the Lord took him to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court. And there Ezekiel sees the idol that provokes to jealousy. Obviously, Ezekiel knew what the idol was, and he assumes that his first readers knew what it was. So he doesn't describe it or explain it for us. But even without knowing what the idol represents, we know this is a major problem. This is a tour of the temple of the Lord. The Lord who said, You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. But here, at the very start of this temple tour, we find an idol in the Lord's temple. And this quite obviously provokes the Lord to jealousy. There is a good and a bad kind of jealousy. Often, we almost always, in fact, use the word in a negative sense. We use it to talk about a controlling, overprotective attitude. Or sometimes we use it as another word for coveting, wanting something that doesn't belong to you, someone else's house or their car or their wife. But there is another kind of jealousy, When Megan and I got married, we entered into a covenant with each other. We committed ourselves to one another. Our love was to be exclusive. Other rivals were not to get a look in. In a situation like that, a certain kind of jealousy is a good and a right thing. It's right that I'm jealous to preserve our exclusive relationship. It's right that I don't tolerate rivals who seek to disrupt our relationship. I would be pretty sick if I wasn't jealous in that sense. And in Israel's case, long ago, God entered into a covenant with them. It was a covenant of exclusive loyalty. I will be your God and you will be my people. And it was for their good. I will guide you and provide for you and I will bless you with my presence. And yet here at the gate of the Lord's temple, a rival is disrupting that exclusive relationship. Of course the Lord is provoked to jealousy. And the fact that the idol is here at all is pathetic. These people have the Lord himself among them. In verse 4, Ezekiel says, There before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen in the plain. Think back to the majesty and the glory Ezekiel saw in chapter 1. That's what these people have among them. And yet instead, they've they've chosen a statue, a lifeless, man-made thing. Here in the vision, the Lord and the idol are standing side by side. And the people's choice of the idol looks ridiculous. It's not just foolish, it's insane. The contrast couldn't be greater. Who would choose the idol over the Lord in his glory and majesty and power and sufficiency? But Israel has chosen the idol. This tour of the temple has hardly got going, but already things look ominous. And it's only going to get worse. Look at verse 6. He said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here? Things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see things that are even more detestable. Then the Lord takes Ezekiel further in. Now he gets to see some of the worshippers in the Lord's temple. What Ezekiel is going to see is hidden away. So in verse 8, God tells him to dig a hole in the wall. Then look at verse 9. He said to me, Go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. So I went in and looked, and I saw portrayed all over the walls, all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. In front of them stood 70 elders of the house of Israel and Jaazaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Here we have 70 elders, the community leaders of Israel. And behind closed doors, Ezekiel finds the temple walls are covered with all kinds of idols. They're either tiled or carved or painted on the walls. And each of the 70 elders stands in front of a different idol offering up incense to that idol. The idea of incense is to present a sweet-smelling offering. It wafted up so it could be enjoyed by whoever or whatever you were offering it to. Now, the temple had one altar of incense. The Lord alone was to receive worship. But here, worship is being offered to everything but the Lord. That's the point of the 70 elders, each with a different idol. These men are worshipping every conceivable false god. But not one of them is worshipping the true God. Why are these elders offering up worship anyway? Well, they're seeking security. Remember their situation. Thousands of their people have already gone into exile carried away by the Babylonians. And there is the threat that the Babylonians might come back again and flatten Jerusalem, wipe it off the map. Israel is in trouble. Israel's leaders know that, so they're seeking help. And they're seeking security from every conceivable source, except the one who's actually able to give them help and security. They're offering worship to whatever they can think of, except the one who's worthy of their worship. In verse 12, they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Now, they may be saying this bitterly, in the sense that the Lord hasn't helped us so far. He's obviously abandoned us. So we'll seek help elsewhere. Or the elders could be saying this with a bit of cockiness. We didn't worry about provoking the Lord to jealousy. He doesn't see what we're doing. He's cleared off. We can do whatever we like. Either way, these elders are dead wrong. The Lord does see, He is very much present. Verse 13. Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women sitting there, mourning for Tamaz. Tamaz was an ancient fertility god. Every year he supposedly went through cycles of birth and death. The idea was that these cycles were linked to sowing and to harvest. So, if you showed the right concern for Tammuz, you might get a good harvest. These women are seeking their daily bread from a source that can't give them their daily bread. If the 70 elders' false worship was seeking security, these women are seeking provision. But they're offering worship to a lifeless idol. They're not offering their worship to the Lord who is worthy of their worship. The Lord who can truly provide for them. The tour goes on in verse 15. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. Then he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men. With their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east. They were bowing down to the sun in the east. We're not told who these men are. They may well be priests. But their behavior here is the ultimate insult to the Lord. Right in front of the Lord's altar, they turn their backs to the Lord's temple and bow down to the sun. They have turned from the Creator in order to worship His creation. And before we get into the ultimate consequences of all this, look at the immediate consequences mentioned in verse 17. He said to me, Have you seen this, Son of Man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence? And continually provoke me to anger? Look at them, putting the branch to their nose. False worship leads eventually to social evil. That's what God is saying. People turn away from worshipping me, and the land becomes filled with violence. Worship sex, and you end up with abused women and children. Worship power and you end up with injustice and murder. Worship money and you end up with people being cheated and betrayed. The land becomes filled with violence. And all of this, God says, amounts to giving me the finger. That's the modern equivalent of putting the branch to your nose. It's an insulting gesture. Before we go on to look at the Lord's response to all of this, we need to ask how it might apply to us. Because it would be missing the point for us to say, well, I don't offer incense to drawings of animals. I don't weep for Tammuz. I don't bow down to the sun. So this is no application for me. The heart of the matter here is who is being worshipped. Is it the Lord or is it something else? Again, it would be missing the point to say, well, in church, we only ever sing our songs to God. That would be missing the point because worship is about so much more than just singing. Sure, it includes singing, but it also includes the whole of our lives. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of the Lord. Whatever you do, working, spending, giving, having sex, teaching, cleaning, looking at your computer screen, God calls us to do all of it for his glory. He calls us to offer our whole lives to him as worship. Morris mentioned that in his prayer earlier. And the reality is, if we do something that isn't glorifying God, then it's glorifying something else. Think of the 70 elders in the temple. Each one of them offering incense to a different idol. What was going on there? They were looking for security in everything under the sun, everything except the Lord. If you or I look to our bank balance for security, we are glorifying our bank balance. We are saying that it can provide us with security. If we look to our comfortable home for security, or our job, or our family, then we're glorifying those things. Now, I know none of us stand in front of Barclay's bank offering up incense. But are we perhaps in our hearts looking to the bank for security? But the only one worthy of being looked to for security is God. So how do we know if we're looking to something else for security? Well, just stop and imagine having that thing taken away from you. Just pick something. Maybe your bank account or your job. Imagine that it was going to disappear tomorrow. How does that make you feel? Do you feel panicked? Fearful? Someone said to me recently, if I don't get this thing that I've set my heart on getting, I don't think I could accept not getting it. I couldn't deal with that. Martin Luther said, whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in, that, I tell you, is your true God. Who are we truly trusting for our daily bread? God, our employer, ourselves, Vince Cable. What about sex? Enjoying sex in its God-given context glorifies him. But what about when we go outside his boundaries to get it? Not just adultery, but gluing ourselves to pornography on the computer screen. Aren't we saying, you, Lord, are not able to satisfy me? I need this sexual experience to satisfy me. And so we turn our backs on the one who gives us our breath. And we worship one of his good gifts instead. Just like the 25 men in the temple were bowing down to the sun. When we worship one of God's good gifts, it becomes a God replacing idol. False worship hardly ever involves denying God, it simply treats God as irrelevant. These men and women in Israel hadn't abandoned the temple. They're not saying here that the Lord doesn't exist. They're just treating him as irrelevant. As far as they're concerned, he has no bearing on their needs or their situation. But those other things do. Their shrines and their prayers to Tamaz, those are very relevant. And this is a big danger for us too. Some of us would never miss a Sunday service. We join in all the worship songs But when we walk out the door, when we live our lives Monday to Saturday, who or what are we looking to for satisfaction and security? If it's not God Monday to Saturday, then we're treating God as irrelevant. No matter how heartily we might come here and sing worship songs on Sunday. When we look to something else, for satisfaction and security, we're glorifying that person or thing. We're saying with the elders in the temple, the Lord does not see me. The Lord cannot satisfy me. The Lord cannot be my source of security. What I really need is a spouse or a more glamorous spouse or a more sensitive spouse or some other person's spouse. Or a child, or this job, this salary, this size of house, this recognition in the church. We don't deny God, we simply treat God as irrelevant. We turn our backs on Him and we focus on other things. And that is the heart of false worship. False worship is not just something that happens out there. It happens right here. In the dark corners of my heart. And yours too. And it shows itself in the things that I trust in. And the things that I look to for satisfaction. In his vision, Ezekiel has had a tour of the temple. And now he's shown the Lord's men. Six of them with deadly weapons and one of them with a pan. Chapter 9 is the inevitable conclusion to Israel's unrepentant false worship. At the end of chapter 8, God said, Israel has turned its back on me. They have given me the finger. They have put the branch to their nose. They say, the Lord does not see So I will not see. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, Bring the guards of the city here, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen, who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. The NIV says six guards, but actually these are executioners. They almost certainly represent the Babylonians who would soon come and destroy Jerusalem. But remember, this is a vision. The point is that these executioners are the Lord's instruments of judgment. But with them, there's a seventh man, clothed in linen. That's the clothing of a priest. And he carries a writing kit, so like an artist's palette. It had a slot for a pen, and it had containers for ink. And in verse 4, God says to this priestly man with the pen, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads, of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. The NIV says, put a mark on the foreheads. Literally, the Hebrew says, put a tav on the foreheads. Tav is a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And at this stage, it would have looked pretty much like an X. So there's no mystery here as to what the mark is. It's an X on the forehead. And who is to receive this mark? Those who grieve and lament over all the things they've seen in chapter 8. One writer says this seventh man is to scour the city for signs of repentance. And where he finds it, he is to clearly put the Lord's mark on that person. The whole society is guilty from the leaders to the women in the street. But the Lord is looking for those who turn to him, those who turn from their idols and acknowledge the emptiness and the impotence of those idols. Those who do that are entering into true worship. They're testifying to the worthiness, unworthiness and insufficiency of everything else. They're glorifying the Lord as the one who does offer security. The one who does provide. And we're told the Lord will see. His man is going to scour the city. He's going to find every last one of those people. Notice the Lord says the man with the pen is to go first. Those with the deadly weapons are to follow him. And they're to spare those with the mark. And they're to slaughter everyone else. As the men leave to obey God's command, Ezekiel begins to object. He protests to God. Verse 8. While they were killing and I was left alone, I fell face down, crying, Ah, sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel? In this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? He answered me, The sin of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed, and the city is full of injustice. They say, The Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see. So I will not look on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring down in their own heads what they have done. Then the man in linen with the writing kit at his side brought back word saying i have done as you commanded the lord's response to ezekiel is basically i'm giving them what they want they consider me to be irrelevant they choose their idols instead of me so they will have their idols instead of me they say that i don't see so i will not see I will not look on them with pity. I will give them what they want. But then the man with the pen returns, saying to the Lord, I have done as you commanded. Those who turn to you in repentance have been spared. Your wrath will not wipe out everyone. Those who repented are safe from your wrath. Ezekiel chapter 9 is an echo of a much earlier story. Back in the book of Exodus, Israel was a nation of slaves. The Lord sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh to say, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. Pharaoh's reply was, who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord. What he meant was not, I don't know about the Lord, But I don't acknowledge the Lord. The Lord is irrelevant. I make the decisions. The Lord can say what he wants. It has no bearing on what I do. The Lord's reply to Pharaoh through Moses was, I will show you who I am. When I am done, you will know very well who the Lord is. And you know the rest of the story. The Lord showed his power in ten signs or plagues. The final plague was death. Every firstborn in Egypt would die. Were there no exceptions? Well, you know that part of the story too. Those who took God seriously would be saved. God's command was to slaughter a lamb without defect and then put the lamb's blood on the doorposts of their homes those who hid behind the lamb's blood were saved. They were marked for salvation. God said, I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn. But when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. There was hope and salvation for those who accepted God's sign. We find the same message here in Ezekiel chapter 9. And over in the New Testament, we find a man announcing that his own death was God's ultimate sign. He said to his disciples, my body will be broken for you. My blood will be poured out for you. Jesus became the ultimate slaughtered lamb the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation tells us that those in heaven are those who have the Lamb's name written on their foreheads. Those who will be saved are those who have turned from their false worship to worship the Lamb, to cling to him as their only source of security and salvation and satisfaction. So, what hope is there for false worshippers like you and me? What hope is there for men and women who day after day turn their backs on their Creator? We worship created things instead. What hope is there for men and women who look for security and satisfaction in all of the wrong places? What hope is there for men and women who, in our day-to-day lives, deny the relevance and the sufficiency of God? Our only hope is to turn to the cross. For some of us, that will mean coming to the cross for the very first time, admitting that we deserve destruction, but trusting in Christ for salvation. Many of us here are Christians. And yet every single one of us falls into false worship. And if you think that's not true of you, then you prove my point. Because you're worshipping and you're glorifying your own goodness. You're saying in your heart, I am worthy. False worship has its roots deep down in our hearts. And it shows itself outwardly in our pride, in our anxiety and worry, our lust, our impatience and anger. Repentance is not something we do once. All of us need to keep turning back to the cross. We're called to lifelong repentance. Every day we have to turn back to God from our idols. All those false sources of security and satisfaction. Every day you and I have to learn again to glory in our Redeemer. To be satisfied in Him alone. We're going to remind ourselves of that as we sing together, I will glory in my Redeemer.